are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Greetings to everybody. If we've never been introduced before, my name is David Guzik. I am a pastor. I am a, well, I don't pastor a congregation right now, technically, uh, even though I serve at a church, but I'm a pastor. I'm a, a Bible commentator. If you would happen to know me outside of my work uh, here on YouTube, it was because I have a, it might be because I have a verse by verse commentary through the entire Bible that some people find helpful. So uh, what I do is on a Thursday afternoon, whenever I'm able, at least it's afternoon here uh, on the West Coast of the United States, uh, whenever I have the opportunity, I join us all for a question and answer time. When I'm not able to do it, usually we can have somebody fill in for me, uh, somebody who's part of our Enduring Word team. If you see my eyes darting around, again, it's because, hey, I'm here in a parking lot and there's lots of things to catch my eye. So hopefully it'll go well. Hopefully the phone won't get too warm, which it feels okay here. And uh, we'll have a great question and answer time. Our lead question for today. This is how it works. Uh, we begin with a lead question. This lead question came into us by Facebook. And uh, after the lead question, we'll get to your questions in the live chat. But our lead question for today comes from Ramona via Facebook. And uh, Ramona asks a question relating to praying for the dead. Uh, so here's the question from Ramona. Should we still pray for someone who passed away, who did not know the Lord, or who did but did not seek him intentionally throughout his life? Is someone's fate done, decided once they pass away? Going through the grieving process, I cannot pray for that person, but someone said that if you haven't done, excuse me, they say, I cannot not pray for that person. But someone said that if you haven't done anything to point that person towards the Lord while he was alive, there's nothing that can be changed now. Thank you and God bless your ministry. Well, Ramona, thank you for your question. And let me say first and foremost, I'm sorry for your loss. Uh, of course, it's difficult when people who are close to us, whether they're family or friends, it's difficult when people who are close to us die. And of course, unless Jesus returns first, that's gonna be the fate of every single one of us. Every one of us is gonna to have to die and it's important for us to consider eternity now, N not just later, not just when we uh, you know, think it's necessary or needful, but to consider eternity now. Okay, so that's the one part, I'm, I'm sorry for your loss, um, I pray God would bring to you comfort. And I understand the, uh, your phrasing when you say that you can't not pray for this person that you know who died. There's something within you that just kind of compels you. You just have to pray for them because you love them. You care about them. And, and you care about whether or not they uh, spend eternity in heaven or hell. And, and you, you're thinking, if there was anything that your prayers could do to influence that, to affect that, you, you would wanna do it. Ramona, we understand that perfectly. I think that not only is that uh, an understandable feeling, but, but there's a lot of good, there's a lot of compassion that um, is the, the source, the origin of that feeling. But Ramona, I do have to tell you, here's the quick answer to your question. We should not pray for the dead. Uh, prayers for the dead are done perhaps in ignorance, which look, let's face it, th there's a lot of people who have a heart towards God but aren't biblically informed on some particular area. Prayers for the dead are either done in ignorance or perhaps sometimes in defiance of a certain biblical truth. And here's the biblical truth, that the eternal state of mankind is determined in this life and not in the next. Now, everything we know from the Bible about the eternal state, about the eternal fate of men and women, tells us that that is something that is settled now in this life and not in the age to come. If you'll excuse me just for a moment, I'm keeping an eye on my phone here. 
I'm trying to make sure that it's not getting too warm. Once before I did a live stream or I attempted to do a live stream uh, from a car and I, I had the phone stuck to uh, the windshield and I don't have it stuck to the windshield right now, but it's not far from the windshield and it just got too hot and the thing just shut down. So friends, if unexpectedly we get shut down, that, that would be the reason why. But let me get to the answer to Ramona's question here. How do we know biblically that heaven and hell that eternal direction is settled on this side of eternity and not on the other side of death. Well, we know it from a few passages. First of all, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 says this, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Now friends, that's a very simple and straightforward verse. We die, we die once, and then we face the judgment. That's just the simple truth. Now, it's fascinating to me that in this passage, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, the writer of Hebrews there wasn't intending to speak about reincarnation. That would be the relevance with the die once idea. Uh, nor was they, were they intending to speak on um, the certainty of coming judgment. R really, what they're emphasizing here in context is the certainty of the once for all death of Jesus. But what they say is this, just as certain as it is that we die once, just as certain as it is that we die once and then face the judgment, that's how certain it is that Jesus Christ died once for all uh, for the sins of his people. So what, what I just wanna emphasize with that is that this is uh, what you might just call an axiomatic truth. It's something that's so plain biblically that it's used to uh, prove other truths. Uh, let me read you a couple other passages. Um, but again, just to summarize Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, just as certainly as we die once and then face judgment, so Jesus only had to die once, not repeatedly, not continually in order to bear our sins. Okay, then another passage, and these are the words of Jesus himself from John chapter eight, verse 24, where he says this. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am him, you will die in your sins. And of course, the whole context there of Jesus's words is that it's a fearful thing. It's a heavy thing. It's a terrible thing to die in your sins. This was a serious warning from the Savior. The day of grace will not last forever. And as he was speaking to the religious leaders, we can say that death would make the sinful darkness of these religious leaders permanent. You know, the Bible tells us that we're born in sin. That's in Psalm 51 verse five, as well as other places. And if we hold on to our sin, if we do not deal with our sin, then we will die in our sins. And since all sin must be dealt with, those who die in their sins will have to pay for their sins in what we call hell. But if we have our sins dealt with now, on this side of death, by trusting in who Jesus is and what he did to save us, then we can avoid dying in our sins. And then uh, let me just give you one more passage and this is just maybe a little bit slightly out of context. I, I, I don't think in the big picture, but 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 says this. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So again, that's just emphasizing that now is the time. Today is the day that the Bible doesn't point us forward to a future time, a second chance, a time after eternity. So what th this really means, Ramona, is that now is the day of salvation. Now is the time for people to settle their state with God, to enter into right relationship with God in and through Jesus Christ by trusting in who Jesus is, and that's who Jesus claimed to be, and what he did to rescue us, mainly what Jesus did at the cross in dying as a substitute for our sins and what Jesus did in raising from the dead to display that the price had been paid and to demonstrate his victory over sin and death. Now, that being the case, Ramona, 
We should not pray for the dead. Their fate is settled. Pray for their family members and friends. Pray for those grieving the death of the person who's concerned. Yes, uh, definitely pray in those regards, but there's no need to pray for the dead. Their state is settled. Um, If there are second chances, God did not want us to know about them. Now, friends, I'm gonna move things around just a little bit here because I'm fearing that it's getting a little too warm where I had things. And so I'm gonna move it a little bit closer. Uh, Not because I want to be bigger in your picture, (laughs) God forbid, but because I'm trying to get it away from the windshield and I'm trying to prevent something that happened to me before when I was doing this in an automobile. I was doing this and uh, the phone overheated and just suddenly shut off. I was completely shocked. There I was just doing a, a Q&A from a parking lot, well, in a different place closer to my home, but I was doing the, the Q&A in a parking lot and then just instantly everything went blank. All right, well, I'm hoping to avoid the same fate by having the air conditioner on here and uh, bringing to you our Q&A for today. So Ramona, th- that really is the answer to the question. Um, we don't need to, we shouldn't pray for the dead. Um, this is just something that, that goes against the biblical understanding that our fate is settled on this side of eternity and not um, on the other side of eternity. If there are second chances, God didn't want us to know about them. And that's sort of a way I, I think when I approach the scriptures, you know what, somebody, no, 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 there's gonna be a second chance. Well, listen, if there is, God deliberately didn't want us to know about them because he wanted to live in the awareness of today and to live our lives with that kind of understanding of eternity. Okay, so that's it for our lead question. Now, let me go on to the questions that have come in on the live chat. Um, Let's see, hopefully we're not gonna experience much in the case of buffering or lag issues. Uh, You know, usually when I'm on a good 5G signal, we get this through just fine, but hopefully that'll come through. Uh, Sean asks this question. Hello, Pastor. God bless you for your yes to your to his calling. Do you think that the events in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, uh, the beast from the sea, the beast from the earth, 666, shall be followed as it is in the book? Um, Sean, uh, my general answer to that question is yes. I mean, I, I do think that... Um, I do think that God gave us the book of Revelation to convey real, helpful information to us. And and certainly there are some things that are more applicable to the generation in which those things will come to pass, Uh, but there's instruction, there's help for us, there's preparation for us, even in those things that that may not happen in the soon time or, or for those people in church history past, they, they didn't happen in the soon time for them. And so Sean, yeah, yes, I, I believe that these are, are real things. Uh, of course, the book of Revelation uses a lot of symbolic language, uh, a lot of very vivid symbols and analogies and signs, but those symbols and analogies and signs point towards real things, real events. These aren't signs about symbols, about signs again. These are signs or symbols of real things that will really happen. And so uh, I do believe that in large measure, these things will happen just as it has said. Um, And certainly there will be nothing that happens in contradiction to what the scriptures say. Now, I, I believe that there's no doubt plenty of things in God's unfolding plan of the ages that he has not specifically revealed. Um, The general picture, of course, is revealed, but there may be things that are not specifically revealed, and of course, that's fine. God God knows what should and shouldn't be revealed to his people, but in the big picture, yes, uh, it's gonna happen. And I I do believe in a, um, what might be called, uh, some people call it a futuristic understanding of Revelation, where most everything in the book of Revelation uh, describes real events that will happen in the future, uh, and there are other people who uh, describe it as more of a literal approach. And I would say literal, yes, understanding the literary um, the literary 
structure and organization of Revelation, which does use a lot of signs and symbols. But again, I would just emphasize, these are signs and symbols that point to real things, real events, not make-believe things and make-believe events. All right, let's continue on now to the next question from Donald, who asks, when a person is challenged because of their sinful lifestyle, challenged because of their sinful lifestyle, what is a good comeback or response when they say, you can't judge me? Well, Donald, I I would say something like this. I I would tell that person, I I have no intention on judging you. My judgment doesn't even really matter. Who cares about my judgment? My, My judgment is somewhat irrelevant. No, but what matters is before God. What, what matters before God? Does God judge you? Does God judge anyone? And I would simply like to say that this idea of God as a real, legitimate, qualified judge is sort of lost on much of humanity today. And I think it would be very good for people to regain it, to regain their understanding of and confidence in God as judge. So that's a um, wonderful truth. And so let that person know that yes, you have no intention of judging them, but God most certainly will. Okay, excuse me while I just set things up just a little bit here. Pardon my hand. That looked kind of rude, didn't it? I'm just trying to set things up where I can get the camera a little bit more stable. We can watch this. Hey everybody, we're already in almost 20 minutes into our live stream. You can tell that uh, I'm not in my home studio. Uh, I'm in a glamorous parking lot somewhere in Southern California, south of the Los Angeles airport, LAX. And uh, I am here because uh, I was helping my mom and my sister out by uh, driving them somewhere. Very happy to do that. Love you, mom. Love you, Sister Jan. Uh, and it's, it's a uh, great thing for me to do that, but it meant that I needed to do this Q&A 12 o'clock on Thursdays, at least West Coast time in the United States. Uh, I needed to do it from the road. So I'm not driving. I don't want anybody to think that I'm driving right now. I'm pulled over in a parking lot, and uh, we're hoping that it makes it through without the camera overheating, because that did that one other time when I was doing the live stream from a car. I do want to make a couple other announcements, though. Number one, if you would please pray for my mother-in-law, Gunnar. She lives in Sweden with my beloved father-in-law, Nils, and uh, Gunnar had a, a, a serious fall. She didn't break her hip, but she broke a bones in her lower back and uh, I just ask you to pray for my mother-in-law Gunnar she's part of our Enduring Word family she tunes in as often as she can on uh, these uh, Thursday afternoons, it would be Thursday evening for her and uh, I can't say for sure that I know that she's uh, viewing right now um, but uh, I would suspect that probably she is, so please pray for my mother-in-law, Gunnel, that she has a rapid recovery, that God's healing touch would be extended to her in a wonderful and powerful way, and that uh, God would give her relief and comfort even in the midst of a hospital there on the west coast of Sweden. So pray for my mother-in-law, Gunnel. Thank you for your prayers. And the other thing I want to share, uh, just before we go in farther, I want to share that I just received a text message from uh, somebody on our Enduring Word team who gave me the great news that our New Testament commentary translation into Farsi is now completed. Uh, I suspect that it's not up on the website yet. You could go to the website farsi.enduringword.com. But man, this is a great milestone for us to complete the translation of the New Testament commentary into Farsi, and of course to make it absolutely free for uh, anybody's use. Uh, No paid ads, nothing like that. It's just available for free. Farsi.EnduringWord.com. Friends, if you have Persian-speaking friends or believers or family, 
If you know of people doing ministry uh, to the community from Iran and some of the other neighboring countries that speak uh, Farsi, would you please let them know about our commentary? We put the link right there in the uh, chat. And uh, praise the Lord. I, I want to thank those of you who uh, support Enduring Word through your prayers and through your generosity. Because it, it costs us quite a lot to do these translations. Normally it does. And we've invested a lot of money into the Farsi translation. A lot of time, a lot of resources. And let me say, we're happy to do it. We think it's a good kingdom purpose, but it's really because of the generosity of the people who help support the work of Enduring Word. So very grateful for that. I just wanted to share with you that milestone. All right, let me go to the next question here from, let's see, uh, Chitao. I hope I'm saying your name correctly here. Chitao says, is it biblical to pray to the Holy Spirit to take control of our mind? Since God did not make us as robots, how great is the Holy Spirit's role in controlling our thoughts and our minds? Scripture references would be appreciated. Well, Chitao, it's a little bit tough to come up with a specific scripture reference that speaks of the Holy Spirit controlling our mind because the Bible just doesn't speak in that kind of terminology. But I'll give you a couple places that I think speak to the general principle. One of these general principles is to say that the Bible says that we should not be conformed. I'm, I'm quoting to you freely from Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, that we should not be conformed to the world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Again, not the adaptation of the spirit taking control of our mind, but the renewing of our mind as we're transformed by the ongoing work of God. And, and so Chitao, really, that, that's the way to think of it. I would base a lot of that on Romans chapter 12, verse 1, and especially verse 2. But then there's also the passage in Colossians, I believe it is, where it speaks about us having the mind of Christ. And we just know from the context and from, you know, the way the New Testament presents these things, that's not talking about a mind meld, but that we have the nature of Christ within us and that the, the mind of Christ, we could say, is at least in some sense accessible to the believer, especially through God's revealed world, word. To tell that the main reason I would make the contrast between uh, saying that the Holy Spirit doesn't control our thoughts, not only on that same basis of Romans chapter 12, verse two, but I would just say that on principle, the Holy Spirit does not control a believer the way that a person might be controlled under demonic possession. Under demonic possession, a person's personality can be overwhelmed. Uh, we think of the classic example in the Gospels of the Gadarene demoniac. And uh, that was a person who was sorely and seriously afflicted by demonic spirits. And, and they had sort of lost control of their own functions or faculties, at least some of the time. The Holy Spirit does not work like that in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit works in and through a person without controlling them as would be the case somewhat at least in demonic possession. So that's the best way that I would phrase that there for you, Chitao. Uh, but the main scripture, you're asking for a scripture passage, and um, I would just say right off that it would be the principle from Romans chapter 12, verse two, that our transformation doesn't come from the Holy Spirit possessing our minds or taking control, but that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Okay, uh, next question comes, or actually two special prayer requests. Uh, actually one I see came from my mother-in-law, Gunnel. So she, um, again, is asking for prayer from our Enduring Word family. So uh, please pray for Gunnar in uh, Sweden. And then um, secondly, from Banjo, who asks, hello from Calvary Chapel, Cary, North Carolina. A beloved sister Barbara in our church has cancer and is having surgery today during the Q&A. Can you please pray for her? Blessings. 
Well, um, let's pray for Barbara and pray for Gunno right now. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you uh, that we heard from Carrie uh, on the east coast of the United States that this dear woman in their fellowship, Barbara, is having surgery right now during the time of our question and answer time. So Lord, we pray that you would give a grace and blessing to the hands of the surgeon, to every medical person involved in this. But Lord, even above that, that you would be the great physician that would not only bless and take the best efforts of medical personnel, but Lord, even go beyond it to do a work that only you can do as the healer of our bodies. We also pray, uh, Lord, for our dear sister and my mother-in-law, Gunnar. We pray for her in Sweden, Lord, that you would give her a rapid recovery and that, Father, uh, even the time that she has there in the hospital, that you would be very creative and powerful in ways to bless her and assure her of your love and care for her. Thank you, Lord. Bless Barbara and bless Gunnar. Give them the gifts of your healing in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, thanks. We've got a community here in the Enduring Word, don't we? And so uh, glad that we could pray for these things. Um, okay, sometimes we lag a little bit on the questions coming in, so I'll just kind of stall for a few minutes. Uh, as I've told you before, I'm back in Southern California. You know, last week uh, I was in Maine, family vacation, and uh, we did the Q&A from an unusual setting. Let me just ask you, if you enjoy these Q&As from unusual settings, uh, let us know, and we'll just keep that in mind for future shows. But uh, hey, if, uh, you know, I also like just kind of the ease and the comfort of doing it there from my home studio. It's a pretty humble studio. It's more like an office, but you get what I'm saying. Okay, next question comes from Carmel, who asks, uh, Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 mentions, a mixed multitude leaving with the Israelites. Were they a problem, for example, taking part in blaming Moses and complaining against God? Was it a wheat and tares situation? Um, Carmel, yes, somewhat. Uh, the Bible does mention this phenomenon of the mixed multitude leaving with Israel. Uh, there were Egyptians, there were people maybe from other countries, uh, maybe people who were slaves from other nationalities who left along with the Israelites because they could see that God was with them. And that drew them to the God of Israel and the people of the God of Israel. So uh, we have that very clear phenomenon of people um, from other nations, other peoples joining with the Israelites as they left the land of Egypt on their way to Canaan. And there are some mentions, I can't remember which specific books, but uh, there are some question, uh, there are some uh, mentions in Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, maybe Deuteronomy, of there being some trouble coming, some unbelief, some murmuring, some complaining coming from this mixed multitude. So yes, there was a mixed multitude that came out. Not every person, of course, the, the, the group was predominantly Israelite. I guess it would be in the low percentages, those who were part of the mixed multitude. Uh, but there were um, a group of who came like that. Um, next question comes from Brianna. Brianna asks this. I know that the word says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I am believing and seeking a house in this market, yet the natural odds are against my finances. Any words of encouragement, does faith apply to this? All right, well, Brianna, let, let me speak to you very straightforwardly and very honestly. I, I don't have any doubt that you look at your life and your financial situation, your living situation, and you can see that it would be a significant blessing for you to own a home and maybe to own this particular home. Um, and so there's nothing wrong with you praying about this and asking God for it. But Brianna, I, I just wanna remind you that there are things that God sees that maybe you don't see and that there might be reasons why this home isn't so great for you. 
Uh, maybe it would extend you financially beyond what you're able to bear. Uh, maybe it has unexpected repair problems that you can't see. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pray in faith for this home, but you should pray in what I would call a contingent faith, a dependent faith. Say, Lord, as far as I can see, this is a great house, a perfect house for me. I pray that you would bring all things together for it. But at the same time, even while you are confident in that and praying in that sense, you can also say, but Lord, you see the things that I cannot see. If this isn't the right house for me and I can't see it, then Lord, I want you to reign over this and for you to demonstrate your love and your power over this. Now, I think that there's two errors we can fall into. One is to never be bold in asking God for anything. Let's remember what it says in the book of James. You have not because you ask not. And there's a very real place in the Christian life for us just to simply ask the Lord for more. But then there's another attitude that kind of violates the principles of humility in the Christian life and the fear of the Lord. Uh, and whenever we ask, we do it always in recognition that Father knows best, that God knows. And, and so we don't allow that to cripple us and never to ask, but we just always ask yes with boldness as far as we can see. Friends, God doesn't hold us to be responsible for more than what we can see. And so we pray boldly for what we can see and then just trust the Lord to display his goodness and his will in everything else. So I hope that's helpful for you, Brianna, and thank you for your question. Um, I'm just gonna pray that God gives you a lot of wisdom and that God brings you this house or a house that's even better. How about that? Um, next question comes from Now I Know. Uh, says, hi, Pastor. Not long ago, Sweden had been a pioneer in missionary work. And what's your opinion about the current condition of the country? I have heard some people there are burning holy scriptures in the name of freedom of speech. Okay, uh, now I know, I don't know much about the specific occasion that you're talking about. I've just heard maybe bits about this uh, in social media. I've heard that there's been some burnings of the Quran in Sweden. And I, I don't think that that's what you're referring to as holy scripture. Maybe other people are burning copies of the Bible, maybe out of sympathy with Muslims, maybe to do that as well. Maybe they're burning the Bible and the Quran. I don't know, whatever it is. But if you were to give me my sense of the spiritual condition of Sweden, I'll say a couple things. Uh, number one, Sweden is an unbelievably secular country. And true Christianity is seen by many Swedes. Again, we're speaking in generalities. We can't talk about every Swede, of course. But biblical Christianity is seen by many Swedish people as just an oddity. They're like kind of surprised that people still do that. They're like, really? It, you know, they, they think of just something from the Middle Ages and Again, just sort of maybe a sense of surprise that people still do that. Um, it's remarkable to see and visit Sweden, where I'm gonna be in just a few weeks, uh, how secular the country is. It is, according to some surveys, the most secular country on earth. I Look, uh, whether or not it is the most at all, it, it is certainly one of the most secular countries on earth. And so its spiritual condition is very low. But here's the other problem. It's that uh, a lot of the church influence in Sweden isn't good. Uh, now, there's some good churches in Sweden. Of course, praise the Lord for them. May the Lord bless them and strengthen them. May the Lord multiply and, and bless every good church in Sweden. But the church of Sweden itself is very compromised, very weak. And um, if, if people want to see the future of ministries that are fully egalitarian, fully open to women on every level, you just look at the Church of Sweden and th that's your future right there. Um, if egalitarianism 
was the answer to revival in the church, then the Church of Sweden should be one of the most revived churches on the face of the earth. But of course it's not. So thank you, uh, now I know, for your question. Um, Banjo asks, Hi, Pastor David. I'm a Christian man struggling with being single, and I want a godly woman that I can marry and have a godly family with. Do you have any passages or advice that can help? Well, Banjo, here's kind of the problem, is that every individual's story is a little bit different as to why um, they have difficulty in getting married. Uh, some people... (laughs) Some people are too carnal or fleshly in their pursuit of a mate. Other people are too spiritual in their pursuit of a mate. And they're waiting for God to sort of, so to speak, drop somebody down from heaven almost. And so, you know, there's a difference from person to person and situation to situation as to why uh, people face this this dilemma that a lot of people face. I would just encourage you to uh, just be bold in the way that you would um, meet people. And uh, sure, you're going to face some rejection along the way, uh, but just sort of be bold and proactive. And, um, you know, it is this curious situation that, again, as I said, there's some people who are not spiritual enough in their pursuit of a mate, while there's other people who are way too spiritual in their pursuit of a mate. There's some people who are... um, uh, too proactive and other people who aren't active enough. Uh, there's some people who have their standards too high. There's other people who have their standards too low. So again, it's kind of very difficult to say what your specific situation is. But in general, I would just encourage people, um, especially men, if they want to get married, uh, that they would um, just be more proactive. It, there's just something strange in the Christian world today where there's a lot of Christian men who say, I'm single and I really want to get married, but I can't find anybody good, you know, suitable for marriage, not good in another sense. And there's a lot of Christian women who say, I'm single and I want to get married and I can't find anybody suitable for marriage. There's just something wrong. There's some strange disconnect uh, in this. So I hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Next question comes up from Andrea uh, related to something that came up on the kids' question and answer stream. Uh, She asks, so does God love angels even though he doesn't love Satan? If so, is it a greater or lesser love than he has for his people? Well, Andrea, no. Okay, we're talking about whether or not God loves Satan. And I would put faithful angels in the same category. You know, when we talk about angelic beings, we can put them into two different categories. There's faithful angelic beings and there's fallen angelic beings. Uh, fallen angelic beings would include Satan, Lucifer, son of the morning. Uh, but then fallen angelic beings would also include the angels that fell with him, as is described in the book of Revelation, where it says that he drew a third of the stars of heaven with him. So um, if we use angelic beings to mean both faithful and fallen, I don't think that God has... Um, a love relationship with them, either faithful or fallen, the way that he has with human beings. Again, because I think that there is a difference in compatibility between um, humans and between angelic beings as far as being made in the image of God. So that's how I would phrase that. Uh, Next question comes from Joanne. Um, Joanne's asking and praying for that we can get a translation project started in Japanese. Well, you know, Joanne, that would be a blessing, of course. To have the commentary translated into any language would be a blessing. But uh, Japanese is a little bit tough because uh, there's just not many believers in Japan. And so uh, please pray for it. And if God opens the doors and connects us with the right people, we're very open to doing a translation project in Japanese. Right now, our main commentary translation projects are in, oh good heavens, Spanish, Russian, Chinese, German, uh, Arabic, Farsi, Kurdish languages, Italian, Portuguese, some I'm forgetting for sure, French. So 
Yes. Okay, next question comes from, oh, these are just expressions of thanks. Uh, Sierra says that the Indirect Road commentary has been a life-changing tool for me. When I need further understanding, I'm so thankful. And Shenandoah said something similar. Thank you so much. Joanne, Sierra, Shenandoah, thank you for your kind words. And of course, look, I'm so pleased to hear that that absolutely free online Bible commentary is helpful for anybody. Um, Look, I, I understand as much as anybody would that not every commentary is helpful for every person. Um, There's some people who find a lot of benefit from particular commentaries that I don't get much out of. So if somebody doesn't find my commentary to be helpful, I don't take it personally. I'm just happy for anybody that does. Okay, next question from Andrea who asks, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, when God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, was he including all of Abram's descendants, including those of Ishmael, today's Arab peoples? Um, No, I don't think so. Uh, Because uh, that promise to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you was part of the covenant that God gave to Abraham. And the covenant that God gave to Abraham was passed down not to all of Abraham's descendants. Remember this, Abraham had more descendants than just Isaac, more than just Ishmael. After Sarah died, Abraham married a woman named Keturah. And I think she had he had five sons through Keturah. So, um, yes, that, that, that uh, promise to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you does not carry on to all of Abraham's descendants, but it's part of the covenant that passed down through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who fathered the 12 tribes of Israel. So I hope that's uh, clear and I hope that's understand. Now, listen, um, God has a blessing for the descendants of Ishmael. There's no doubt about that. God has a blessing for the descendants of Ishmael. Uh, I just taught about that in Genesis chapter 21. Uh, And then previously in an earlier chapter of Genesis, it speaks about God's plan and destiny for the uh, descendants of Abraham and Hagar. So, uh, yes, God has blessing for the Arabic people. God has blessing for the descendants of Ishmael. But that particular part of the promise really belongs to the covenant that God made that was passed down to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, next question comes from Tony, who says, I understand when it is said God knew us before we were in the womb. My question is, Is our spirit created upon conception by God? Or does this mean that the spirit existed before being consumed, uh, being conceived in the womb? Okay, uh, Tony, look, we just gotta admit that the Bible doesn't speak clearly about this. So we want to be careful about being dogmatic, but just from the general tone and presentation of the entirety of scripture, I'll give you my understanding of this. Tony, I would say that it works like this. Yes, God creates a person's spirit, soul, inmost being, whatever you want to call it. God creates that aspect of a person's being on their conception. However, that person existed in the mind of God and in the will of God, God's plan before their conception. So there's a sense in which every person exists before in the plan and will of God, but um, not in actuality. And so uh, I I would think that uh, we don't have a pre-existence before our conception, but it's at our conception that God creates a spirit or a soul. However, uh, people can exist in the mind and in the plan of God before they are ever born, because thankfully God knows the beginning from the end. Right, before I get on to the next question, let me just say hello from a parking lot in the South Bay area of Southern California. I see cars everywhere, cars on the road, cars in the parking lot. I'm right outside of a department store and um, not a lot of activity in the background, which I'm happy for. 
but I'm just doing this because I just recently dropped my mother and my sister off uh, for a trip that they're gonna take. And now um, I'm bringing you this Q&A from the road. Welcome, greetings. Uh, Spirit Warrior asks this question. I have heard some people claim that loved ones who have passed on can pray for those of us left behind. Is there any scriptural evidence or suggestion for that? I have a problem with that position. How can we refute this? Well, Spirit Warrior, one of the ways that I would um, speak about that is from the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. Uh, it's the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus described something for us of what it's like in the world beyond. We don't have many descriptions of this. But in the description of the world beyond, the man who was in torment, the rich man, he was aware of his relatives back in this world. Not that he was aware of what they were doing, but he was aware that they existed. And he was aware that he did not want them to end up the same place that he was. But he was powerless to do anything about it. His prayers or the prayers or the helps of Lazarus, the righteous man who died at the same time or nearly the same time as the rich man. And Lazarus went to a place of, a place of blessing um, and, and I think that really answers it for us that no, um, our brothers and sisters, those that we have known in the Lord who have gone on before us, they may or may not know what's happening with us in this world, but even if they know, they're powerless to do anything about it. That's not how it works. Okay, next question comes from KK3. How would you respond to a Catholic or Orthodox saying that they got the doctrine of praying for the dead directly from the church fathers and the apostles, etc.? Well, I, I would just say two things. Um, you know, understand, well, no, let me just answer the question as you give it. I, I had some thoughts go off in another way, but let's just come back to the answer as KK3 has presented it. I would just say that as helpful as the church fathers and um, other leaders in the early church were, they don't compare to the word of God. Again, we don't dismiss the early church fathers. We don't dismiss um, godly people through church history. We have an insight into the scriptures, but neither do we allow something that's not scriptural to be established merely on the authority of other believers, whether those other believers be ancient or modern or somewhere in between. So we would just come back. It's not only is it not a biblical doctrine, but as I said before, it goes against biblical principles, the principles that I shared in the very beginning of the program. So I would just say that, you know, listen, sometimes Protestants are way too dismissive of uh, the church fathers or others through church history who have been helpful in their theology and understanding of the scriptures. No, we, we should respect them, we should learn from them, but never, ever, ever put them on the same level as the scriptures themselves. And realize that it's possible, listen, there were things going astray in churches in the New Testament times. Of course things could go astray in the period that we call the period of the early church fathers. So hope that's helpful for you there, KK3. Now, a um, question that Barry asks, what are some practical examples of fleeing from idolatry? Wow, good question. Okay, practical examples of fleeing from idolatry. Well, I, I would say, uh, what are the main idols people worship today? They worship from, they worship, uh, Oftentimes, uh, sex and romance. Uh, oftentimes, uh, they worship uh, money and financial success. They worship popularity and fame. And Christians just need to run from the worship of those things. 
uh, I, I guess you could say, to, to, to distance themselves from them. When you run away from something, you're putting distance between yourself and that thing. Look, I'm going to say something that sounds kind of harsh and maybe even counterproductive. But, but there may be some people right now watching this on their phone and you need to get rid of your phone if you can't find a way to use it in a way that honors God. You're committing idolatry with your phone. You, you are more in love with your phone than you are with God. And if that's the case, you need to flee from that idolatry. You, you need to put yourself on a fast from your phone until this thing is broken in your life. Uh, so anything that would put itself in, to, to flee from something is just to put yourself, put distance between you and it so that it does not have and cannot have an undue influence upon your life. Okay, uh, let me see where we are in the questions here. <clears throat> All right, lightning round. Ready for this? Hope I'm ready. Uh, Lynn and Tiana ask, uh, are Catholics not saved? Do Catholics believe they are saved by Jesus plus work? If so, maybe they are not saved. Okay, well, Lynn and Tiana, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church has an overemphasis on works in salvation. It, it's not proper to say that they believe that you're saved by works, but I would say that they have an overemphasis of, on works in salvation. That's the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Look, I've just got news for folks. There are many, many Roman Catholics who don't believe the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And, and we gotta get out of this conception that salvation is a matter of belonging or not belonging to the right or to the wrong group. Uh, that's what's really important. Uh, it, it's not important whether or not you belong or don't belong to the wrong or right group, but rather that you have an individual relationship of trust and love with Jesus Christ, where you take the biblical Jesus, not a Jesus of your own imagination, not a Jesus of the cult, but the true biblical Jesus, and you bring the real you to the real Jesus, and you trust in him, rely on him, and cling to him. That is how to be right with God. Not on the basis of who you are, but on what Jesus has done. Are there people in the Roman Catholic Church who have done that and are in right relationship with God? Absolutely. Uh, are there people in good Protestant churches who have not done that? Absolutely as well. Uh, so again, we, we gotta get out of the conception that salvation is a matter of the group that you belong to. No, we need to realize that it's the individual's relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I, I'm not saying that the group you belong to doesn't matter. Of course it does. It's gonna be very difficult for most believers to grow spiritually in a church like the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not saying impossible, it'd be very difficult, it'll present a lot of hindrances. So that should be considered and avoided. Okay, next question from Janet asks, Pastor Guzik, who really was Melchizedek? I believe Melchizedek was a unique man. I don't believe that he was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, though I'll allow that he could be. It's not like I'm really firm on that, but as I weigh the evidence, I think that it's more likely that he was just a man who was a remarkable picture or type of Jesus Christ. And so he was the priest of Salem. He was the king of righteousness. He was a remarkable man that God used in the Old Testament in this marvelous encounter with Abraham who had a real relationship with God being the priest of Salem, which later we know as Jerusalem. Uh, Tolo, Tolo Trierna asks, sorry if I got your name wrong there. Um, are Christians in the United States experiencing a sense of persecution? Well, yes, but let's face it, it's very minor persecution. I, I think one of the big mistakes people make when they think about persecution is they just think like it's an on-off switch. And either there's no persecution or uh, Christians are being shot to dead in the streets. There's no in-between. And, and that's just a wrong way to think about things. There can be all sorts of gradations in persecution. And I think uh, there's a very real minor level of persecution that we see from time to time in the United States. Um, listen, when, when there were governments unrighteously and unjustly 
trying to shut down churches and tell churches when and when they couldn't meet for worship. Telling Christians when and when they could not meet for worship, that was a minor form of persecution. We don't want to exaggerate it. I mean, of course, people are being killed in the streets and we're happy for that and all the rest. Uh, but it was a minor form of persecution. And um, yeah, when, when the government's telling Christians when they can and can't meet, that's, that's persecution on some level. Uh, Jesse asked this question. Hey, Pastor David, do you have a good book I can recommend uh, that explains a good evidence for how the apostles and how they died for Jesus? Okay, ah. Okay, I think it was Sean McDowell who did a book on this because it was something like a uh, thesis for an MDiv or a thesis for a uh, doctorate that he did. So look up uh, Sean McDowell writings on the apostles. I think he did a pretty exhaustive study looking at the historical and traditional sources. Um, I, I think that's probably gonna be the best place for you to look. Uh, BB asked this question. Uh, Prayed a thousand times for salvation and yet I still doubt that I have salvation. I don't think my original altar call was genuine at all when I was a kid. People now say that I must be saved, otherwise I would not care about this issue. How can I truly tell that I am saved? Listen, BB, the Bible says this, that if you believe with your heart on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God raised him from the dead, if you'll confess your sins, put your trust in Jesus. The Bible says you'll be saved. Jesus says he won't cast out anyone who comes to him. I, I hope you're not thinking that you're somehow an exception to that. That somehow you're the one that God would cast out. And so I understand some people just find it more difficult. It's harder for them to believe, but you can believe this. You can push your trust in this. The, the, the promises that Jesus makes to those who come to him, those include you, B.B. You, you don't need to think that they are talking about everybody except you. They include you. And you can say this, I put my trust in Jesus, not perfectly. Nobody can put their trust in Jesus perfectly. But to the best of your ability, you've put your trust in Jesus. You've repented of your sins. You look to him for your salvation, not to yourself. You're not trying to earn it yourself. You're trusting in what he can and has done for you. And you find your rest in that. That's your assurance. And you can say, I may not feel today like I'm saved, but Jesus says I am. And that's good enough for me. I hope it is good enough for you. And I hope you have a sense of real peace and rest in that. And that'll be my prayer for you, BB. All right, uh, before we leave off today's program, I got one more important announcement. Just this last Friday, so almost a week ago, we ended our matching funds campaign. Uh, you know, look, we're not big on fundraising here at Enduring Word. Uh, we do like one campaign in the summer, a matching funds campaign, and then do another campaign at the end, a, a, a year-end campaign. So other than that, just if people want to donate, they donate. But I do just want to say we finished our summer matching funds campaign, and all I want to say is thank you. Thank you for the tremendous generosity from our Enduring Word family. We continue to be blessed, and we continue to be very, very grateful for uh, your prayers, your partnership, your support. Uh, God has given us a lot to be thankful for, and we really wanna express that gratitude to him. So thank you so much for everything today. Uh, thank you to our moderator. Thank you to the parking lot of this mall in the South Bay off the 405 in Southern California. And uh, thank you that the phone didn't overheat and shut off. I'm touching it and it's cool to the touch. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, next week, I'm gonna be up in the mountains at a camp and I hope to join you for the Q&A from there. That's the plan, let's hope it works out. And uh, I will say this, next week, if I'm a little bit late, don't worry about it. 
Don't sweat it. I'll be there. Or somebody will be there. We'll have it. And uh, we'll see you next week. God bless you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your prayers for uh, Barbara that we prayed for early. Thank you for your prayers for my mother-in-law, uh, Gunnel. Uh, thanks to our Enduring Word family, we're very blessed with what God is doing among us. God bless you. Thank you so much. And we'll see you another time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.